Religion is one of the great evils in the world. So argued Karl Marx, the 19th century German philosopher and social revolutionary. Marx believed that religion was, as he put it, the opiate that numbed the minds of common people to their pitiful social condition. We've gathered here, Marx would say, because we just want to be drugged, to not have to really face the difficulties of our lives. He claimed, in fact, that the myth of heaven was devised by oppressed people to help them cope with their sufferings on the earth. Living under the spell of this myth, the poor gain just enough contentment in their misery to ignore the oppression of the wealthy. Mark said, there is no God. There is no final reward, no final punishment. And if people would just throw off such myths, they would be liberated from their bondage. Well, we know a little bit of the history of where this thinking has taken those who have imbibed Marxism. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller quotes Nobel Prize winning Polish poet Czesław Miłusz. In an essay, The Discreet Charms of Nihilism, Miwush argues that the true opium of the people now is to believe there is no final accounting after death. When a society begins to believe there are no eternal consequences to our actions on earth, that society begins to lose its moral foundations. When people believe that they can steal and cheat and fornicate and lie and worship pleasure and love money with no fear of any final accounting before God, that society is in a moral fog and it is stumbling toward moral collapse. This is what we see in our culture when a shooter walks into a school building and takes the lives of any number of people and then takes his own life. We see the evidences of this absolute disregard for any thought that there's a future and eternal accounting. If you believe that you will stand before a holy God of the universe to give account for your life on earth, you do not choose to enter into that eternity with the blood of children dripping from your hands. The knowledge that we will face God in eternity and that He will weigh our actions in this life is an essential and it is a life-preserving motivation for our pursuit of moral excellence. It is not a myth, but even if it were, let me live in a society where people believe in the myth that there's something after this life. We live increasingly among people who have no sense that they will ever answer for their actions. If I can just avoid detection here, that's the end of it. Last week, we concentrated 
on our call to pursue moral excellence. It was a convicting passage. And I invite you back there to 2 Peter chapter 1 as we considered verses 3 through 11 last week, down through verse 15. But in, the first, in verses 3 through 11, you remember that we saw God's great provision in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Spend the rest of your life working that, those two verses out. That is deep, it is profound, but we realize here God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We have a full package in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Not a partial package. We don't have to find and discover something else. In the relationship that we have with Christ, we have all that is necessary and possible to live a life with moral excellence. We will remain sinners. We will continue to fail. But in that relationship with Christ, we have all that we need. What we're lacking because of family background, what we're lacking because of some suffering that we've gone through, what we're lacking because of the lack of wisdom that we seem to have, it is not going to be found elsewhere. It will be found in Jesus Christ. God gave us everything that we need to live morally excellent lives. And so, what did he say? Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and so on. Because we have been supplied this power, we should put it into play. We should pursue then for all of our lives moral excellence. Working down through to verse 10 where he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, these virtues, these moral um, responses, you will never fall, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We don't earn our way in through our moral excellence, but by pursuing righteous and godly living, we prove that we belong to God. We prove that His project of transformation is indeed taking place, that He has given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. If I demonstrate nothing but moral corruption in my life, then it is evidence that God has not redeemed me yet. And I need to turn to Him for saving grace. Because He provides His people with all that pertains to life and godliness. It'll be a long slog. We are going to be dealing with sin the rest of our existence on this earth. Don't be discouraged by it necessarily. But is there that evidence of the power of God working in your life to change you? Do, are you seeing moral progress? Do you see purity in your life? What Peter says here is we need to be testing, confirming our calling and election by the way that we live. By the moral excellence that comes from our lives. As weak as we are, as fallen as we are, there should be progress. There should be change. He brings all of this out here in this first chapter. And what God has done and revealed in His promises to His people enables us to live righteous lives, and therefore we should live righteous lives. Our good deeds will never earn heaven, 
but they do bear witness that we're headed there. Now, in verses 12 through 15, Peter reminds them or or informs them, I am soon to die, and I'm going to keep reminding you of this until I'm dead so that when I'm dead, you will never forget it. You're never going to forget that Christianity is not simply about certain facts and filling our head with certain theological ideas, but it is a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. I'll never let you forget that. I'm going to keep reminding you of it and reminding you of it and reminding you of it that we keep coming back to the truth of God's Word, but remembering that that truth transforms us. It changes how we live. And Peter, as we move on now through this first chapter, understands that undergirding and motivating this call to moral excellence is our recognition that Christ will return and bring the world to account. In this passage, Peter reveals two assurances that Christ will come again. This call to moral excellence really doesn't matter ultimately if Christ is not coming back. I think you'd live a better life if you were striving to live in purity rather than in just giving yourself to sin. But as even the Apostle Paul makes clear, ultimately, if it is not for the truth of the gospel, for Christ's death and resurrection, we have no hope. There's really no point in some sense. But all of this is undergirded and motivated by the fact that we will face Christ as our judge. We will give account for our deeds in this world. There's all kinds of people living around us that say that's just ridiculous, that's just myth. But what Peter is saying is you need to understand what Christianity is resting on is this reality. You will face Christ. That can be a wonderful meeting. It can be a meeting of condemnation. And how you live in this life has everything to do with that meeting. So let me assure you it's going to come. The return of Christ as Lord is assured, first of all, by the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. This is a crucial part of the Christian faith, that we recognize this. The return of Christ as Lord is assured by the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. He picks up this theme in verses 16 through 18, where we pick up today. For he did not, verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You note there in verse 16 the word for. So everything that we've been reviewing here and that we looked at last week, this passage is based on all of that. For all that God has supplied in His power, we are then to live a righteous life confirming our calling as His people. Peter is going to remind us of all of this for, and this is the foundation of it all. This is, what, this is the essential basis of all of this call, pointing back to all that he said, this life of moral excellence is based upon this revelation. That Christ will come back. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we said this to you. Now I don't think here that Peter's referring to the myths of the false teachers. They follow cleverly devised myths. Indeed they do. 
But I think what he is saying is, this is, I think he's understanding here or, or presenting here the idea that he is responding to the charges of the false believers or the false teachers. They are charging the apostles with telling myths. And one of those myths is the resurrection of Christ. One of those myths is the fact that Christ will return. These are just myths the opponents are saying. And they'll be dealt with here in chapter 2, but I think he's working himself there. So, four, basis of everything that we've seen, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just a, just a brief little trail here that I think will be helpful. What's a myth? In the ancient world, how did a myth function? We use the word myth, and we're just talking about some story, some legend, something like that. But it, it had a more uh, significant function in the culture of the ancient world. A myth was a story that was told or ideas that were conceived. People, for the most part, knew that they were not true. Now, there are myths that people think are true, and they hold to them, but it, myth in the ancient context, but people pretty much knew they were not true. But these fictitious beliefs and stories were used to help common people know what was expected of them ethically in society. So can I trail off from ancient Greece to Karl Marx? You poor people are being told by the rich people, just keep quiet. Don't grump about anything. Your reward's in heaven. That's the myth. And he's saying you should recognize people that this isn't true. This is just a myth. And it's a myth so that the wealthy can oppress the poor and you can all be happy about it because your reward's going to be in heaven, not on earth. You see how the myth gets people who are poor to act a certain way in Karl Marx's world. So these fictitious stories help people to know what was expected of them. False teachers were claiming, Peter, apostles, we know what you're doing. Resurrection, transfiguration, these kinds of things. They're just stories. They're stories to help people know how to think. Peter enters in here, and when he considers resurrection, ascension, the return, the reign of Christ, all of these ideas, he says, no way. Now, it, it, if Christianity was myth, this passage would not be here. The apostles would say, you're right. I mean, we understand it's myth. It's, just, it's a story that helps us to act a certain way. I don't know the history, I'm not claiming to, but somewhere along the way somebody came up with the myth of Santa Claus to get kids to behave, right? He sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake. I mean, so what's the point? Behave. Does anybody really believe in Santa Claus? Well, not after a certain point. If that's what Christianity was, this wouldn't be here. Peter says, wait a minute, no way. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we talked to you about the return of Christ. As Douglas Moo puts it, in contrast to almost all other religions of the time, Christianity had a stubbornly historical basis. It was insistent that everything that we believe is based on historical fact. You have no Christianity without that. 
These Christian, so-called Christian teachers, they come out of the woodwork every Easter that say in the newspapers and the media, it really doesn't matter if Jesus rose from the dead. They're flat wrong. It absolutely matters that He rose from the dead. Historically, we have no faith without that history, historical foundation. And every apostle insisted on it. We, I was not devising a myth when I talked to you about the fact that Christ will come again. What I'm calling you to do, Peter says, as you pursue moral excellence, is not based on myth, it's based on reality. Not a myth, but rather, the end of verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He refers here to the event that we read about earlier in the book of Mark, where the three apostles went to the top of the mountain with Christ. We don't know exactly where that was. But in that context, they saw Jesus transfigured. They saw Him shine with glorious light that points to the future. And in that place, they not only saw something, they heard something, and that was the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We're not going to take the time to go back through that event. We just read it. It was just read to us here earlier. But notice verse 17. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Here's what I'm talking about, verse 17. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. You notice verse 17 refers to the majestic glory. That's just another word for God. Glory from God the Father. Born to Him by the majestic glory, this voice, that refers to the Father. Jesus received two things here. What are they? He received honor. That is when God spoke from heaven, said, this is my beloved Son and who I am well pleased. That's honor. And glory, when He was transfigured and His body shone with glory. Now it's interesting that we don't have time to chase it at great length. The context of the Gospels that reveal this transfiguration event. They're very consistent. The synoptics, that's the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is a bit distinct from those Gospels. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all are very consistent in the way that they narrate the transfiguration. It's very informative to us. Again, though we can't look at it at great length, the transfiguration follows Jesus' revelation that he's going to die. Now put yourself in their place. Jesus, you're not going to die. You're going to reign. You've got this wrong. What, what, what is this discussion about dying? We saw it, didn't we, in that context as they're coming down the mountain uh, after the transfiguration, there's, what is this thing about rising from the dead? They don't, they don't have categories for this. They don't understand this. But when Jesus says he's going to die, this shakes their faith. Messiah doesn't die. Messiah rules forever. The transfiguration is intended to bolster the faith of the disciples. 
In each of the gospel accounts, Jesus prepares his disciples for the transfiguration, secondly, by telling them that some of them will see the kingdom of God coming in power. They're not going to die before they see that. I am who I say that I am, even though I'm saying I will die, and you will see the kingdom of God coming in power. Immediately after that promise, all three of the synoptic writers narrate the transfiguration. It's very clear that the transfiguration then is a preview or a manifestation of the promise that Christ will return to rule on earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. The transfiguration revealed Jesus as the glorious King and it pointed forward to how He will return in splendor to set up His kingdom. We were with Him on that mountain, Peter says. I'm here to tell you I saw and heard the preview of His return to earth. For a brief moment in time, what happened on that mountain is that the future broke into history. Some mountain in northern Israel somewhere, it broke into history and Peter adamantly insists that he saw it and he heard it. We know Jesus is coming in glory because He already did. And this reality is to have a direct effect then upon how we live our lives. On that mountain, the future broke into the moment. And we saw Him. And we heard God's confirming voice. And so we should live our lives in light of His coming. The return of Christ as Lord is assured by the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. This is what they saw. This is what Peter saw. This is what he bears witness to as he speaks to us about how we are to live our life. So the return of Christ as Lord is assured by eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Secondly, the return of Christ as Lord is assured by the written testimony of the prophets. Verse 19. And, something of a transition here, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We've got we to kind of work through this a little bit, so plow with me. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What does that mean? The prophetic word refers to the prophecies of Scripture that promise that Messiah will come and reign in His kingdom on earth. Those prophecies, at this point in time of the Old Testament, we have that prophetic word and it is more fully confirmed. What is meant by it's more fully confirmed? A common interpretation, one, in fact, one that I held until very recently, uh, is, is, the, is this idea. We have the confirmation of my eyewitness account of Christ's transfiguration, but we have even a fuller confirmation of Christ's return in the prophetic word. So the idea might be something like this in this view. There is a contrast between the proof of Peter's experience in seeing the glorified Christ and the even greater assurance of God's written Word. So this glorious vision, this glorious experience on the mountain, there's an even greater confirmation, and that's the Bible. If you can't believe me, Peter's saying, Scripture is a better source of truth than experience anyway. Now, what I really have, and I've held that view for a long time, but as I've thought through it, I've changed my mind. So I'll just walk you through this a little bit, but see if you follow. 
What I like about that view, what I think most conservative Bible students like about it, is it can be used to emphasize the importance of written Scripture over human experience. And wow, could we go on that for a while, and that's a good point in other contexts. But I think we're using the passage to make that point, and I think we have to be careful not to. I'm not going to argue with those that would differ, but I, I just, I've been led this way. It seems most likely to me that Peter would not pit the transfiguration against the Scriptures in this way. It seems unlikely that he would so disparage the authority of his eyewitness account of the transfiguration when we recall the significance of the apostles' witness to the resurrection of Christ. The scriptural prophecies about the coming kingdom of Christ are more fully confirmed, I think the real idea is here, by the transfiguration because they were momentarily realized. It's not that his experience on the mountain is the issue. The issue is the transfiguration, and that transfiguration fulfilled, not in the complete sense, but in a sense, it fulfilled those prophecies. His kingdom came for a moment on that mountain. He shone with glory, and the Father spoke from heaven, and in that moment, the prophecies were fulfilled. Again, not completely, but the word can be used that way. So if I understand it right, I think Peter is saying these prophecies are now more fully confirmed by the transfiguration so that both are a confirmation and an assurance of the return of Christ. The transfiguration, his experience, and the written prophecies. But together they are working as one, not one against the other, not one more important than the other, but the two working together. So it might be something like this. If I've lost you, come back. But you get in the mix with some people and you hear the news that there is a new, young, 400-meter runner that's going to run for the, for the U.S. in the Olympics. And this guy is unbelievably fast. The guy that informs you about this, this runner says he will win a gold medal. There is no question about it. You hear this sort of prophecy, this prediction that this runner is really going to win this race. But he says, I want to show you something. Come with me. And you come and, and you go into a stadium that's entirely empty except for that one runner. And this friend of yours sneaks you in the top and you overlook this stadium. The runner doesn't hardly know that you're there, but you watch, and you watch this guy run around that track so fast, your mind is spinning. You have never seen a human being run like that. In fact, it seems almost supernatural. And your friend turns to you and says, he's going to win a gold. And you're going, yeah, no kidding. Now, of course, that's this world, and the guy probably you know, blows out a knee or something, and it's all over. But, but using that as an illustration, that's a little bit of what the apostles saw on that mountain. He's going to come in his kingdom. I've seen it. 
I've gotten a preview of it. I've gotten a foretaste of it. I've seen Him glow with glory and I've heard the voice of God confirm who He is. The kingdom came for a little bit. And like in the illustration, watching that practice, you're seeing this is a special runner. No one can beat this person. And what would be our response to this? It makes perfect sense what Peter then says, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We saw him glorified for a time to which this experience of the transfiguration and this call to holiness, you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. It's a challenging phrase, but I I think it makes fairly clear sense. We will do well to heed the prophetic word. God's prophetic word has never failed. The prophecies of Scripture foretold the birth of Messiah, and those prophecies were fulfilled. In like manner, God's trustworthy written word confirms that Christ will come, and we will do well to pay attention to that coming. This sure confirmation of Christ's return is the foundation that calls us to moral excellence. This world, says Peter, is a realm of moral filth and darkness. But God's Word is a lamp. Don't think like lamp sitting in the living room. This would have been an oil lamp that's carried to give light. For us, we have the advantage of a flashlight. This prophetic word is like a flashlight in the moral filth and darkness of our world. The light is not inside of us, as so many insist. The light is external to us. It is found in God's Word. The light is not inside, but it illumines us. God's Word illumines our way. And to this light we should look until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. The dawning of the day is a reference to what the prophets referred to as the day of the Lord. It's speaking of that end time coming where Christ sets everything right. The morning star is Jesus. And the rising in our hearts is that Christ's return will fill our hearts with hope and light. So I might illustrate it something like this. A soldier is sent through enemy lines by going through a series of caves in a mountain. There's utterly no light. But he's given a flashlight. It's very dingy in there, but this light is his life. It allows him to pass through the bowels of this mountain, through this system of caves. He's able to see where he's going. He keeps making the right journey, going in the right way. And after the mission is all fulfilled and he makes his way through this system of caves, he comes out immediately into the bright light. And there stands the general who commissioned him for this dangerous journey and there stands his awaiting army and his friends receiving him back that's something of a picture of what we're doing the the light the 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 flashlight is god's word in this dark world and we're inching our way through this vile world as god's word continues to give us light but there's a day when the dawning will come When we will see Christ, the faith will be made sight. And it will be like that flashlight. And I don't mean to say, I don't think the Bible will ever be important again. I think it will be through eternity. But as you come into that light, there's a dawning within. And you've come to the final place 
where God has been taking us. So concerning this written Word, we are to trust in it. We are to follow it. We're to believe it. It is the flashlight until we meet the glory of Christ having come again and reigning. And so until that morning star rises in our hearts, we know this, verse 20, that first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's not myth. It all originates with God's Word, His truth. Someone's own interpretation. The Roman Catholic Church has taken this to mean that no one can interpret the Bible apart from church leadership. I don't think that's the meaning. But notice the words here in verse 20, comes from... And verse 21, produced. I think the emphasis falls here on the origin of Scriptures. And it's a bit debatable, although the larger point is not. The prophetic word of Holy Scripture does not originate in someone's head. It's not a myth. It originates with God. The Holy Spirit bore along the authors of Scripture such that they wrote precisely what God intended to reveal to us. The authors of Scripture use their own minds and they reflect their personalities and and their literary idiosyncrasies. These are very human books on that side of things. But God's Holy Spirit worked concurrently with human authors such that what the Bible says is the very words of God. It speaks the truth of God to us in our time. And the implication, of course, is that the Bible is God's Word, as the long string of fulfilled prophecies continues to confirm. What God has said in ages past comes to place in time. The implication is that we should believe God's written Word and we should obey it. God has spoken hundreds of years before events take place and told us what's going to happen. The Bible continues to confirm over and over and over that this is God's Word. Peter says, let's come back to it. You have our eyewitness testimony that the kingdom came, it broke in in its glory on that mountain. And you have the confirmation of God's prophetic truths revealed to us in Scripture. Jesus is coming back. He will come to reign and we will deal with Him. We will meet Him and we will be accountable. In our world, people constantly, uh, systematically, characteristically base their lives on the myth that there will be no accounting before God. And maybe, in fact, you're here today and that's how you live your life. You say, I'd I'd, I'd have to look long and hard to think of anything that I've done recently because of my fear of facing Christ. Or not done something because I'm thinking about the fact that I am accountable before Jesus Christ in eternity. There may be some among us here, that's how you live your life. You just really don't think about Him. His coming has no effect on what you do in your daily life. If that's the case, I just say to you by way of warning 
and because I believe the words of Scripture. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. We will die, no argument with that, but after that comes judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Here's that word again. We will face Christ and we will give account. Philippians 2.10, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Let it sink in. We're going to come before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ and we're going to kneel. You're going to kneel. If that scares you, you say, I don't, I've never thought about Christ coming again. I don't live according to that thought. And you say, that's just, that's frightening. Well, good. You're in touch with reality. But let me tell you, there's really, really good news. And that, and that is that as you come as a sinner and stand before God, there is a provision that has been made by the Lord Jesus Christ for His people. We can come to what He has done and allow His righteousness and His goodness to be our way into heaven. To stand before Christ forgiven is a reality. For those who place their faith in Jesus' death to pay the penalty of their sin and in His resurrection power to defeat death, when we place our trust in what Christ has done, what He has provided, we can come before Him and kneel as forgiven and righteous people. Not on the basis of our good works, ultimately, but on the basis of His. Embrace that message, and you'll be prepared to stand before Christ. The Karl Marxes of the world will ridicule and despise such an orientation. What we'll find in our world at every turn, people just mocking this kind of idea and saying, you just follow myths. But true insanity is to have life from God, to be created in His image, to be headed for eternity, and to live as if our actions in this life have no consequences in the next. It might be the radical person who takes a life of school children and then takes his life thinking that there's going to be no consequences. Quite a way to prepare to enter into eternity. But it may be the more respectable way on the other side to just pay no attention to Christ. He's not coming back. That's, it's not a concept. It doesn't change the way that I live. It doesn't change the way I think. It doesn't change what I do. It doesn't change my attitudes. The fact that Jesus Christ is coming back and that I will kneel before Him and give account for my life just simply doesn't matter. It doesn't come into account. That's just as insane. When we live that way, we close our eyes to the transfiguration and we close our eyes to the written prophetic word that Christ will come. 
Born just after this nation gained her independence, Daniel Webster served our nation for 40 years as a senator from New Hampshire, and he became the highest paid attorney of his day. Think Karl Marx here just for a moment, but he was a connected man. 40 years a senator, the highest paid attorney in the U.S. He was a man of unusual giftedness and was widely revered for his moral integrity. Someone once asked Webster what he believed to be the most profound thought that ever entered his gifted mind. Webster said this, The most solemn thought that has ever entered my mind is my accountability to my Maker. For the followers of Christ, that thought is solemn. For the followers of Christ, that thought is joyful. It's sanctifying. It contributes to our holiness. It changes the way that we live and the way that we look at life. People focused on the realities of the birth and death and resurrection, ascension and reign and return of Christ are not chasing myths. What they're chasing in their life is faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly love and agape love. For 2 Peter 1. This is not an opiate. This is not a drug that keeps us centered in heaven so that we're no earthly good or that we don't look at the miseries of our life. What this is, is a life of confirming our calling and election. What this is, is conquest in Jesus Christ. It's a life that's been rescued from the darkness, has been given life in Jesus, and goes on to live in power under His gracious hand. That's not a drug. That's grace. And may we live out that grace in our daily lives for the glory of God, for the holiness of our souls, and for that eventual meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ who will come again. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank You for this exhortation, this reminder from Your Word, the coming of Christ, and we confess, I confess before You, how many days on this planet are lived without a thought of the return of Christ. I pray that those days would become less and less for every one of us. I pray that your revealed word here today and the gathering of the church around that word will help to sanctify our thoughts and to direct our attention to what Christ has done, to who he is now and to his coming in glory. I pray for any who know not Christ as Savior, show them that it's not a myth and there's transformed lives to prove it. Every believer in this congregation, every Christian on this planet is a hypocrite on some level, is dealing with sin. We are not perfect people, but you have put a love in our hearts that is otherworldly. It's supernatural. And as you change us and grow us and develop us into the likeness of Christ, I plead by your grace that we will make our calling and election sure, that we will prove it, and that we will ever be motivated by this profound thought. I 
am accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ who is coming again. I will kneel before him and I will answer for my life. Father, what joy is ours as we now sing and as we continue our life together as a church, what joy is ours that our standing before Christ is based on his righteousness and not our own. May we respond by living with joy and gladness, filled with your spirit, and being transformed into the likeness of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.